We're glad to have you here. We welcome all of you for the gather with us this uh, second service on this Sunday morning. We welcome our visitors with us. Uh, glad to have you all the way from around the world. So uh, what a blessing to have you here. And those who are just around the neck of the woods, around the corner, we're glad to have you here too as well. Uh, <clears throat> as you, if you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me now to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 66 uh, is where we'll be today. This is now the final chapter in our book. And uh, <clears throat> uh, But we're not... We will not be finished with Isaiah yet. There's at least one more, probably two more uh, messages in Isaiah. Okay, so, but today we're going to look at verses 1 through 6 of Isaiah. Isaiah 66, verses 1 through 6. And since it's a short passage, I will read the scripture for us. And that's kind of just a treat for us to hear the word of God in its full, uh, in its full uninterrupted uh, context. Isaiah 66. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. But he who kills an ox is like one who slays a man. He who sacrifices a lamb is like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who offers a grain offering is like one who offers swine's blood. He who burns incense is like the one who blesses an idol. As they have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations, so I will choose their punishments and will bring on them what they dread. Because I called, but no one answered. I spoke, but they did not listen. And they did evil. In my sight, and chose that in which I did not delight. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you, who exclude you for my name's sake, have said, Let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. But they will be put to shame. A voice of uproar from the city, a voice from the temple, the voice of the Lord who is rendering recompense to his enemies. Thus says the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we come again to your word. Thank you, Lord, for this book. Thank you for the salvation that you revealed to us within. But Lord, we thank you also that you revealed to us your plans for the future. The promise of your, your servant, the Messiah, coming again to establish his kingdom of peace on earth. And Father, we thank you, Lord, that you reveal this to us, and we thank you that, that your servant is none other than our Lord, Jesus Christ. We thank you that we can shout joyfully and sing joyfully, praise you, praise you, hallelujah, because of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the, just the, the privilege to draw near you this morning and to hear from your word, our creator. And we pray that your word would speak to each of us, Lord. We especially pray that you would challenge us here we gather to, as we, to worship you, that you would cause us to examine our own hearts. Lord, we know that there's none of us here are perfect yet. We pray that your word would show us any area of our life where we may be, in, while thinking that we are worshiping you, are having caught up instead in a, in a false form of worship. Lord, may you be glorified. May you continue to refine your, and purify your church here. We pray that you would do a work in each one of our hearts, encourage your saints exactly what they need to hear from you, Lord. We pray that your spirit would fill us, move among us, convict and challenge us of our sin, our need for Christ. And if there's anyone here, Lord, who does not yet know Jesus as their Savior and Lord, we pray, Father, that today, that as they hear your word, that they would become the kind of worshipers, those true worshipers that you are looking for, that you're seeking around this world. Father, we pray this, all these things for your glory in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. This morning, as we look to Acts 66, I want to start off by going to Acts, the book of Acts, or Isaiah 66, going to the book of Acts in the New Testament. And you don't have to turn there, but I'll just kind of do a quick summary of what happens in Acts chapter 6. In Acts chapter 6, the early church in Jerusalem is growing, right? Uh, the gospel is spreading. The word of God is spreading all throughout Jerusalem. And, and many people are becoming to saving faith. Among those who are coming to saving faith 
were the priests, the priests of Israel. Now, if you remember, a lot of these, uh, the priests and the religious leaders were the ones who most opposed Jesus when he walked on earth. The oftentimes, if you remember Jesus, who he would condemn, he would condemn the religious leaders because they had perverted or twisted the, the worship of God into something else that was just uh, their own traditions. And so inevitably, as these priests came to know the Lord, the, the people, the, the Jerusalem people were feeling that their, the Jewish religious system was becoming, atta- becoming under attack. And naturally, opposition began to rose. If you remember, Stephen, who is the main character in uh, Acts 6 and 7, is one of the early, uh, we call it proto-deacons, one of those seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom. And he eventually would become, at the end of chapter 7, the first to be martyred for his faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, And it turns out, and as we look, if you follow Acts, the opponents uh, induced and false witnesses to basically accuse Stephen of speaking against the temple and the law. Uh, It's verse 13 and 14 of chapter 6. Because they knew that the gospel that he preached, the gospel of Jesus Christ, threatened their religious system. It threatened the temple. It threatened the law that described the, the, different, uh, the different ordinances, the ways that they were to offer up sacrifices and make offerings and approach the Lord. These opponents were more concerned about the religion, their religion that was centered around temple worship. They wanted to preserve that. They were more concerned about that than the righteousness that was revealed in Jesus Christ when he walked on earth, when he preached the gospel of a righteousness that is dependent completely upon the ultimate temple, which is not a building, but according to Revelation 22, is the Lamb, Jesus Christ. And Stephen, of course, would respond to these charges that he was subverting the, the Jewish religion, the temple and the law, uh, with his, for, what is the longest sermon in all, of, uh, in all of Acts. Acts chapter 7, verse 2 through 53, he goes to this lengthy sermon And he essentially recounts the history of Israel from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, David, and Solomon. He describes them. And as he addresses this charge that he's attacking the temple, he makes a very good point. Because as he's gone through this whole list of the fathers, all of them worshiped the Lord. All of them, to some extent, or more more or less, were accepted by God in their worship. And all of them had worshipped God without the temple. They didn't have the temple. In fact, it was Solomon who eventually would build the temple. And he himself, when he was younger, had worshipped God apart from the temple. And in verses 48 to 50 of chapter 6, or chapter 7, uh, Stephen then quotes the first two verses of our chapter today. And that's where the connection is to our today's message. But in doing so, Stephen made the point. A point that's relevant in this text today, but also in his sermon that God does not need the temple. Here the people were getting upset about the te- him attacking their temple, but Stephen's point is that the worship of God does not stand or fall upon the existence of any building, much less the most, probably at that time, the most beautiful building that was in Jerusalem. What matters is not the temple in worship of God. And Stephen then pinpoints what does matter in verses 51 through 53. Of Acts uh, chapter 7. Now flip through there. Acts 7, 51 to 53. He says this. This is his conclusion of his message. Imagine if I concluded my sermon with these words. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Uh, It's a pretty pointed uh, conclusion that uh, Stephen makes. And and, uh, uh, like what he says here, basically like their fathers in the past, the Israelites in that day did not respond rightly to God's word. That what matters is how they respond to the word of God. They had rejected God's prophets who were spokesmen of God's word. They had rejected the one whom God's word pointed to, the, word that they, the promised Messiah, that is the righteous one. 
You see, and the problem, and because of that, their problem in that day, why they were so upset? Because they were more concerned about their religious, their religious system, their religion, than a relationship with the righteous one who was, who had come and lived and then died for their sin. They loved their temple sacrifices more than they loved God himself. In short, their worship was not a true worship because they were so caught up in a, the sacrificial system that they had perverted into their own religion. They were caught up by the system of worship rather than the object of worship, that is, God himself. And for this accusation, of course, we know that Stephen was stoned to death. Today's passage, Acts 66, returns to the theme of, of the, that we've seen throughout Isaiah, this contrast between false worship and true worship. A lot of people worshiped God in those days. In fact, most of Israel would have worshiped God in those days. They would have gone to the temple, would have made their sacrifices, brought their offerings. But God points out that though you go through the motions of worship, false worship, fake worship, but there is a true worship of God that God is looking for. And we could apply that today. Many people around the world on this Sunday morning have worshipped the Lord. We've gathered together in buildings, in nice, beautiful buildings. We've done many of the similar things. We've stood, we've sung, we've heard the word of God. We, we've gave an offering. We've spoken encouraging words to one another. But God would look upon us and he would have us remember that there, among us, as we, those who are counted as worshippers, should consider that there's the possibility that we are involved in false worship, fake worship, when God is looking for true worshipers. God had taught the Israelites of the, of the comfort that comes from the promise of the coming deliverer who would establish his kingdom of peace. And God, in Jesus Christ, is now seeking true worshipers to be part of that future kingdom. In our passage today, God then reveals, not only for Israel, uh, not only in that day, but Israel in the future, but all of God's people, even today, what he is looking for in those who worship him. What does God look for in worshipers, those who would worship him? We can't just worship him any other way. I can't just say, well, I like to dance up here, and that's worship. Could be. But I can't just make up anything. I want to wear a nice uh, hat, and that's worship. Make it like a shape like a dome or something like that. I could dress up in a suit, and I call this worship. But what is God? Look for in worship. Well, today we're going to look at, as an outline, three priorities that the Lord seeks in those who worship him. We could say these are three characteristics, but these are three priorities. Priorities in the sense that sometimes there are things that are good, two things that may be good, but God wants us to choose the better thing. Okay, and we're going to see this in, the, in, this, in this passage today. So this is the first priority that the Lord seeks in those who worship him. We find this in verses 1 to 2. And that God seeks worshipers who prioritize the heart more than the house, okay? The heart of worship, the heart that you brought in, more than where you worship or what you do in the worship, more the external, but the internal, okay? You prioritize the internal more than the external acts of worship. Verse 1, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? The Lord himself is speaking here to Israel, and he's talking to them about this house. The house is a reference to the temple. Uh, and if you remember in our history, King David was the first one to offer to build a house uh, for the Lord for the Lord to dwell in. That's 2 Samuel 7, 5. But because of David's sinfulness, God ordained that he would not build it. But instead, Solomon, David's son, would build it. And he did that uh, by 1 Kings 6, 14. Now, since, now keep in mind, though, that as you look at this context, it seems like he's addressing people who are about to or thinking about building a house for the Lord. But if you remember in Isaiah's day, the temple, that is Solomon's temple, was still standing, right? It was not destroyed. It wouldn't be destroyed for another 125, 150 years or so. And so since it's still standing, this, we understand this passage just like much of the latter part of uh, Isaiah, as likely being a reference to a future time in Israel. When is that future time? Well, most likely because the, uh, the, many of the pastors have spoken about the captivity in Babylon that's going to happen to them, and then the promise of their return from ca- captivity. Most likely it's going to refer to that period of time. 
when Israel, after 70 years of captivity, is going to return. That's recorded in Ezra, Nehemiah. And they're going to begin rebuilding Jerusalem. They're going to rebuild the the walls of Jerusalem. They're going to rebuild the, the temple of Jerusalem. Of course, remember now, it's not that God doesn't want them to build a temple. It's not that the temple is bad. Okay? These are two priorities. This is one that's more important than the other. God, in fact, wanted them to build the temple. Remember when they delayed in building the temple? Uh, they they kind of drew it out, drew, drew out the building of it over 20 years. And you thought seven years was long for us. You know? But 20 years. God, then what did he do? He sent Haggai, Zechariah, and he'd go tell them, hey, get back to rebuilding the temple. So God didn't want them to build the temple. God had instructed them in the, in the word about the temple and the worship that they would have in the temple. But God wants them to know that building such a house is not the most important part of worship. It's not the part that you should be, get all upset about, that the building is not right, the temple is not present. And his questions that God asked of the people of Israel remind them basically of what is important. It's not the the, the symbols of worship, but it's all what the symbols of worship point to. That is the object of worship, that is God himself. And in his questions, he essentially describes his greatness and uh, uh, how transcendent he is. He says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. So, of course, it's just a wonderful picture. Can you picture that? Heaven is my throne. So you can just take that heaven as being the skies. It's his throne. God is sitting up in the skies, and his feet are resting upon the earth like a footstool. You guys have footstools at home? Yeah? Okay? And you think about the earth and the footstool. The earth is his footstool, and then the temple is on the earth. So it's like if you were resting your, your, uh, your foot on a footstool, basically, if you, are you ever concerned to the point where, oh, I'm concerned about that little piece of dust on my footstool? No, you wouldn't, right? You wouldn't even think about it. It's not so irrelevant. And that's how God pictures the temple. Even though it's his instructions that they would build it, but God is so great, so transcendent, that the, foot, the temple is like a little piece of dust on his footstool. The whole earth is his footstool. So he basically said, he's so great, what kind of house could you build for him? Essentially, I don't need any house. There's no place that you could build that would be satisfactory because he doesn't need it. He does not need anyone to build a house for him. What's more, whatever they build for him would depend completely on him because he would provide everything that they need to build it. Verse 2, for my hand, he says, here's the reason why they really didn't, couldn't build anything for him. For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. The Lord says here that the wood, the stone, the precious gems that they would use in building whatever temple would not ultimately, they would not be to use unless God provided for them. He made those things. And so even, even as they build the temple, they're essentially just taking from him things that he's given them and then building something and giving it back to him. All those things came from the Lord. They all came into being because he created them. His point is he does not need anything from man. Anything they build for him would, uh, would depend upon him, would come from him. And so if God doesn't need the temple, if he doesn't need people to build him a temple, his worship does not depend upon the existence of the temple, what is the purpose of the temple if he doesn't need it? Well, the temple, much like all of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, as well as all the many ceremonial and dietary laws, are meant to point to him to God, to our need for a Savior, the coming Messiah. It's all meant to point to the object of our worship. The temple is a place where, uh, where the Israelites would gather to worship him, make sacrifices to him. He gave them specific instructions, the law, to guide their sacrificial practices. And everything that they did was meant to point them to their need for God, their need for mercy from him, for forgiveness from him. It wasn't that God needed them to offer animals to him. God didn't need for them to build him a temple. God didn't need them to observe certain dietary laws or he would stop existing. God exists apart from any of these things. God is not dependent upon him. But what God wanted to teach them is that he is a holy God. He's called the Holy One all throughout Isaiah. God is a holy one, and those who approach him must approach him 
in light of who he is in an appropriate manner. Therefore, you are to be holy, for God is holy. You are to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. But who can be like this? No one. No one can be perfect. No one can be perfectly holy. But God's point is that he is not looking for the object, the symbols of our worship, the house. God is looking instead. So what does he look for? He's looking for a genuine heart of worship. He's looking into our hearts, our beings, our character. The latter half of verse 2 reveals these three traits that God is looking for in his worshipers. First of all, we notice that God is looking for one who is humble as a worshiper. Humble people basically are those who do not think more highly of themselves than they ought. They recognize who they are before God. Humility is to recognize who you are before God. Sometimes some of us are, are in the working world, in our world, are great people. Some of us go out there, you lead big corporations and companies. You, uh, maybe you have great responsibilities. You are entrusted with much. No matter how great you may become, no matter how wonderful you are, no matter which, the wonderful things you, can, you say or speak, none of us are, none of us are worthy of God. All of us are sinners before him. We are all unworthy sinners before God. Saved by the grace and mercy of God. The sovereign grace and mercy of God. It's we who, God is looking for people who come to him and say, Lord, I'm a sinner. That's who I am. And I'm in need of your mercy. That's the humble spirit that God's looking for in worshipers. We don't come and say, oh, Oh, I'm just a wonderful guy. Uh, you know, here's my wonderful worship. Oh, be, be pleased by my wonderful worship that I offer you, Lord, because I'm such a fantastic guy or gal. God's also looking not only for humble people, but he's looking for one who is contrite in spirit in, his wor- in worship. The word contrite is the Hebrew word that literally means crushed. Crushed. Um, sometimes we could say this is crushed in spirit or broken in spirit. They're basically the spirit, an internal attitude that recognizes the reality of our devastating sinful condition. Because of our sin, we know that we are dead in sin. We're deserving of God's wrath. We deserve nothing but God's holy wrath and just wrath. We have no excuse before God. We recognize that we are not only are we sinners by nature, but we're sinners by choice. A great example of a contrite spirit is uh, Jesus' illustration in Luke 18, 13 to 14. Of the story of how um, a, uh, a tax collector and a, and, a, and a religious leader went into the temple to worship. The religious leader was basically just saying, oh, Lord, uh, praise you because I'm such a wonderful guy. You know? But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was not even willing to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And then Jesus says an amazing thing about that text collector. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. This tax collector knew that he was a sinner, undeserving of God's, of, of any of mercy of God or forgiveness of God. And so he knew that he needed God's mercy. He was broken. He was contrite in spirit, and he cried out for God's mercy. How many times we come in here and we cry out for God's mercy? Cry out for God's grace. More of your grace, Lord. I need more of your wisdom. When we come, we come as needy people who recognize that apart from ourselves, we can do nothing. And each time we gather we as a church, part of it is that we recognize our neediness, and we need God. There's, you know, sometimes you, you see someone over there, you say, oh, that guy, oh, that guy's got it all together. That man's broken. You see that woman over there? And she's, oh, she's so spiritual. She's broken, too. We are all broken and crushed in spirit. And we, that's why we come here. We, that's why we need Jesus. If you're not broken, you're not going to try. You don't need Jesus. God's also looking for not only one who's humble, one who's contrite in spirit, but one who trembles at his word, one who trembles at his word. God is looking for people who basically hear his word and obey it. They, they, because they know that God has spoken. They, they fear God. 
And if God has spoken, then they will want to observe what he has said. Such people are not going to allow anything to get in the way of obeying the Lord's instructions. Because they revere and fear him. Because they know that as a holy God, if you don't obey a holy God, there will be a penalty. It's no mistake. It's quite interesting. At the very last verse of Isaiah is a message about a penalty. The penalty of disobeying the Lord. God's not afraid about talking about that. I think even as Christians, sometimes we shy away from the part. We tell people all about heaven, heaven, heaven. It's great. But there should be times and appropriate times where we remind people that heaven is where you go instead of hell. Hell, where God judges, where God's just wrath is poured out upon sinful men and women. And we don't want anyone to go there. If you meditate upon that long, if you, you wouldn't want anyone, not even your worst enemy, to go there. We should have a love for people that shares and proclaims the gospel. But we have people who tremble at God's word. We, we need people like the, the Thessalonians. Paul ministered to Thessalonians, and, he's, and he writes to the Thessalonians, For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accept it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. I love it because they heard Paul, the apostle Paul preach and though it was Paul's words that they heard, they didn't walk away and say, oh, that was a wonderful message that Paul spoke. They walked away and said, that, that was an awesome message of God that we heard. And they accepted it as the word of God. And when you're out here listening to, who are you listening to? Are you listening to Henry's message? If you listen to my message, I tell you, it would be vain. I, if it's my message, it will do nothing for you. I might be able to tickle your ears and make you feel good. I can tell you how beautiful and handsome you all are. But it will do you no good if it's my message. But if it's God's message, then the word of God is spoken. And it should cause us to, to hear with reverential fear. God has spoken. Here's the, the significance of this. Why this idea of trembling? You believe that God has spoken. God is God, right? And most of you here, you believe that God is God. Okay, so you know who he is. He's a holy God. You believe that God has spoken, right? Well, if you're listening to me, then you probably understand that we believe the Bible is God's written word to us. And if you believe that God has spoken in his word, then whenever anyone teaches the word or whenever you read the word, you hear the word. If there is anything in this word that tells you it clearly, properly interpreted, understood, that tells you how you ought to live your life. And that's not how you're living today. Then you must ask yourself, am I willing to obey the Lord and change and turn 180 degrees away from my way and go God's way, whatever it is. If he tells me to stand on my head in this word and it's clear, I'm going to start getting practice in standing on my head. Thankfully, he doesn't say that. But if God says sin will be judged, and therefore you need to repent and believe in my son, and that's real clear in God's word, then we all, we all better get into, start repenting and believing in Jesus Christ. And by the way, we should tell others as well. But that's what, that's what trembling in his word means. That's what kind of worshipers, I know many of us are, you know. And this is, it can, get to, it can really be challenging because sometimes God calls us to love him more than we love anything else. I love my wife. I love my kids. Well, God calls me to love him more than I love my wife and children. More than I love anything else. That I, in this God calls me to delight in him more than I delight in anything of this earth. Whatever it is that you delight in, your hobbies, your interests, your joys, your, uh, your career, your work, do you, your money, your possessions. Do you delight in God more than those? Anything else is an idol. God is looking for humble, contrite, God-fearing people. All prideful, self-righteous, self-willed people. You can do all the worship you want. You can come here, you can sing songs, go through the motions, but God will not receive your worship. God will call that a fake worship, a false worship. True worship begins in the heart, in our hearts. Do we have a right heart that's humble, contrite, and trembling before God's word? Now, there's a second, second priority that we see in this passage. It's in verse 3 to 4. The second priority that the Lord seeks in his worshipers is for the... It's for obedience more than sacrifice. God wants our obedience more than sacrifice. Verse 3 to 4. And this is quite surprising to the Israelites because this was, you're going to see here, these descriptions are, are, are quite uh, um, vivid. 
And they describe things that they thought were righteous, uh, juxtaposed or put in contrast with things that were despicable before the Lord. But he who kills an ox is like one who slays a man. He who sacrifices a lamb is like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who offers a grain offering is like one who offers swine's blood. He who burns incense is like one who blesses an idol. And as they have chosen their own ways, and their soul, as, and their soul delights in their abominations. In four parallel statements here, God equates the prescribed practices of temple worship, all these things, killing an ox, oxes were used in temple worship, sacrifice, sacrificing a lamb, part of temple worship, um, offering grain offering, temple worship, burning incense, part of temple worship. All these things were part of it. It's like if I listed, oh man, uh, the four things, four things that we do here every week, oh, singing, uh, worshiping God, giving offerings, having a time of fellowship, and then saying that that's all e- equal to idolatrous pagan practices. Because that's what he, he says they are. To, uh, to sl- killing an ox, he's equated with slaying a man among these Israelites. A slaying a man was a, probably a reference to the practice of, of some of the Canaanite religions to sacrifice their own children to the Lord or sacrifice people to the Lord as their act of worship. The, the breaking a dog's neck, that, you know, it's, it's not, he's not talking about their lack of compassion or their, their heartless or cruelty. The dog was considered an unclean animal. And to sacrifice a lamb is, he says, is equated to basically breaking a dog's neck. They would, just as they would break a, a, a lamb, cut the throat to pour out the blood, is the same thing. It's as if offering an unclean animal. Uh, to offer a grain offering is equated with basically offering pig, unclean, an unclean animal again for Lord. These are things that are unacceptable to him. The one who burns incense before him uh, as a symbol of the prayers of the saints is basically like an idol worshiper, one who blesses the Lord, blesses the, an idol. Excuse me. The Israelites, if, you, if, you, if we followed them throughout Isaiah, were those who have practiced the appropriate external rituals of worship. But yet, yet their offerings were detestable to God, as he describes them. They're like pagan practices before him. Why? The last few statements of verse 3 reveal that it's because of their sin. Because they have chosen their ways, their own ways. They delight in abominations. And this is, uh, we've mentioned before, this is basically one way that we could describe sin. What is sin? Sometimes people say sin is missing the mark of God. But another way we could say sin is sin is basically when you choose your way instead of God's ways. When you think your thoughts are, are right instead of God's thoughts. Basically, whenever you go your own way, when, you just, when we who are God's creation says, you're my, deny that he's our creator and we choose to go our own way. We become independent in a sense. And we think our ways is the right way. So therefore, when Adam and Eve sinned, they chose their own thoughts rather than what God had revealed to them. And when you and I sin, we choose our own ways rather than God's ways. Israel was a nation that essentially chose their own ways. They didn't want to follow God's way. Though they had God's law, they didn't want to follow it. They didn't keep God's law. They, yes, they did the outward observation of all the, the sacrificial system, the religious rituals, and the honoring the, the, the holy days, etc. But at the same time, they were involved in, in idol worship. They were involved in the their own, going, basically practicing a form of religion that they made up themselves. Isaiah 65.2, this is a charge that God had made to them elsewhere. I spread out my hands all day long to rebellious people who walk in the way which is not good, following their own thoughts. See, God already called them out on the ways that they were choosing, their thoughts that they were choosing. They were idol worshipers. And it's like basically worshiping God here on Sunday and then going out and then just living for yourself the rest of the week. That's essentially what they were doing. They, they delighted, and these Israelites delighted in their abominations. Uh, Isaiah forty four nineteen just a reference to how these abominations are, equal, are basically a reference to the idols that they created. They're worshiping idols. Now, I know you and I today don't have uh, idols at home. Uh, Sometimes I thought maybe my, my bobbleheads at home were like idols. I used to collect them. I, I, I gave them all away. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, uh, but we don't have those kind of idols, generally speaking. 
as Christians. But you have all under, have heard it said that when whatever we delight in or treasure in more than Christ is an idol to us. It's an idol. Whatever you delight in, you find more delight in it or you treasure it more than the surpassing value of Jesus Christ, that's an idol. Because you're attributing value and worth to something that only God should receive, Christ should receive. Though Israel outwardly worshipped God in the temple, that's what they did, their lives were characterized by sin and disobedience. And God would punish them for it. Verse 4, so I will choose their, diso- so I ch- will choose their punishments. And I will bring on them what they dread, because I called, but no one answered. I spoke, but they did not listen. And they did evil in my sight and chose that in which I did not delight. Uh, verse, the, latter, the first part of verse 4 really connects with the last part of verse 3. You see, there's a, there's a clear contrast there. Just as they chose their ways, now God's going to choose their punishment. They're so delighted in abominations, so now God's going to give them what they dread. They thought they had delight, but they're actually going to get dread from the Lord. Verse 4, essentially, at the last part of verse 4, confirms their disobedience. God had called to them, but they didn't answer his word. He spoke to them, but they did not listen to his word. And what did they do? They did evil in God's sight. All the time, that phrase, evil in my sight, is used uh, to describe the kings of Israel, whether they did evil or did good. Uh, a lot of times, if they did evil, they would be explained why they did evil. And almost every time when they did evil, it would be associated with the fact that they were practicing idol worship. That they did not remove the high places. They didn't take away those places. And they did evil in God's sight. Even if they did good, a lot of times they'd be condemned because they did not remove those idol places. Israel was caught up in idolatrous worship. In a sense, but it's not the fact that they were just involved in idol worship. But in essence, what they did was they did not listen to God. They did not obey God's word. They were more concerned. They thought what was more important was the sacrifices they made than the obedience in their hearts to God's word. You and I, as born-again Christians, we can easily get caught up with this kind of thinking as well, can we not? We, we can get caught up in just going through the, the, the sacrifices of worship. Oh, that I, I came and sacrificed my time. Uh, I sacrificed uh, uh, in worshiping here and maybe serving in the church. I sacrificed my money by giving to worship to the, in the offering plate. But if I live my life in sin, in unconfessed, unrepentant sin, then my worship, whatever I did on a Sunday morning, whatever I do in a daily worship of God, is a false worship before him. I've got my priorities wrong. God doesn't want my offerings. God wants my obedience. We end up being like the scribes and Pharisees in Jesus' day, those who were called whitewashed tombs, they look great on the outside. They, all, they outwardly appear righteous, but inwardly they're like tombs. They held nothing but de- decay and corruption, sin, lawlessness. King Saul was an example of this who fell into the trap, this trap when he defeated the Amalekites. God had told him to dis- defeat the to utterly destroy the Amalekites and then not only destroy the Amalekites, but destroy everything that belonged to them. Nothing that they possessed which should be kept. But what did King Saul do? And along with some of the Israelites, they, they kept some of the best of the animals. They disobeyed God. They kept the, the, you know, the, the, the prime beef, you know, the, the good stuff. And, but when Samuel came and said, well, what are you doing? Why do I hear all these animals? What does Saul say? Well, Saul said, oh, oh we kept it so that we would worship you. Well, I was going to worship God with it. It's like you stole from work and you say, I'm going to give it to you, Lord, in the offering plate. That's what it would be like. It's like you mug someone on the street, took their things and stole from them, and then you say, oh, here, Lord, it's for you. That's kind of what he was doing. He was caught up. He was more outwards with the outward act of worship than obedience. Um, if we come here to worship, we sing, give, listen, but we do not obey. We do not obey God's word. Our worship is like an abomination to the Lord. When we sing about him being our greatest delight, but in reality he is not, that's false worship. When we give to him, but we're greedy in our lives, greedy for gain, that makes our worship false. When we listen to the sermon, but then we walk away doing nothing with it, or worse, we, we reject it outright. I said, no, I'm not going to believe that. I'm not going to accept that. That is a false worship. 
You just wasted your time. God wants true worship who will come to God with obedient hearts who when you hear God's word will respond to it. And this leads us into the third point. Leads to the third point. That is, God seeks worshipers who prioritize the word of God more than acceptance. That is more than acceptance of men. Verse 5, we read this. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. So now God addresses his word, not just to Israel as a whole, but those who particularly tremble, those who are faithful to God, those who fear him, obey his word. This is what God says. Your brothers who hate you, who exclude you for my name's sake, have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy, but they will be put to shame. That's actually an interesting passage to interpret. It's kind of a little confusing when you read it. But God, is, as he's addressing these people, these, uh, these faithful Israelites, the faithful remnant, he's telling you who trust me, you who obey my word, God, I have a special word for you, a word of comfort. And it's particularly a word of comfort in the face of persecution. Because they're being persecuted by their, not by strangers, not by other nations, but they're being persecuted by their brothers. Their brothers, their fellow Israelites. And what they're, these Israelites will realize, and what Paul talks about, is basically when you fear and believe in the word of God, persecution will come. And it's inevitable. It's, it's kind of like 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You want to live godly, that is by living by God's word, you will be persecuted. And so it's not surprising that these Israelites who are faithful to God, who believed his word, were being persecuted by their own brothers, their own people. True for Paul, it was true for Stephen, it's true for all who tremble at his word. Their fellow Israelites, what did they do? They, well, it says here that their brothers hated them. They hated them because they believed and trembled in God's word. Their brothers not only did that, but they, the brothers excluded them. They, they stood apart from them. They, they, they excluded them from their activities and their gatherings. But what's more, we see here that their brothers taunted them or mocked them. That's that phrase, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. That's what they're saying. When I first read it, I said, well, what's wrong with that statement? It seems good, right? Don't we want to see God glorified that we may see your joy? But apparently this is, was a taunt. It was a mock because these Israelites who believed God's word knew that God was going to return, that he would be glorified, his glory would be seen. They would have joy. But so these who didn't believe the God's word were saying, yeah, let God be glorified, that we may see your joy. Let him come back. Knowing, at least in their hearts, that he hadn't come back yet, and he probably wasn't going to come back soon as far as they're concerned. It's a mockery of the coming of the Lord. We see a similar kind of mockery in, back in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 19. Uh, there in that context of the promise of the Messiah, there are some who would say, let him make speed. Let him hasten his work that we may see it. Let the purpose of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come to pass that we may know it. That sounds like a good promise, but that was actually given in a, in a taunting, mocking way. They really wanted God, hurry up, show yourself if you're going to come again. The same thing we saw in 2 Peter 3, 4, too. We will see in 2 Peter 3, 4, where those uh, Peter writes to the, uh, the believers in Asia Minor saying, uh, these people who mocked him would say, where is the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. There are many who will mock. You believe that Jesus is coming again? A lot of people will mock that. Jesus is not coming again. Jesus is a fairy tale. Oh, man, maybe he was some historical figure who came once and people wrote about that. But he's dead. He's not coming again. Besides, it's been 2,000 years. You really think he's going to come? Really? Believe that? Next thing you're going to tell me, you believe that Genesis 1 and 2 are true. Jesus, didn't, he didn't rise from the dead. He died, just like everybody else. Where's the promise coming? They, so when you believe in the word of God, inevitably it will lead to persecution of sorts. You will not be accepted by other people. You will be not accepted by the world for sure. But there will come a time and place where if you hold to the word of God, you will not even be accepted by those who would also claim to be Christians. There are many out there who go to church on Sunday mornings, but then you talk about the Bible to them, you talk about Jesus, the exclusivity of the gospel, they're going to say, no, no, all religions are good. You can talk to them about some of the sins of the Bible, talk to them, oh, no, no, that's not sin, that's, that's a little backwards thing. 
But you believe and tremble before the word of God. You prioritize the word of God's word more than what man cares about. That is what God is looking for in in those who worship him. You will risk the acceptance of men because you fear the word of God. You tremble before the word of God. You know, in an increasingly intolerant world, there seems unwilling and um, perhaps unable even to disagree civilly with one another. We find that our society is vilifying those who uh, do not hold the same view. And I hope you probably know, you should be noticing that. And the the tactics are pretty familiar. Uh, those who disagree with you are first labeled, then they're ostracized, and then they're hated. And that's and that's not just the world's tactics, but and sadly, I, I've, sometimes that happens among Christians. But that's the, that's the tactic of our present world. And if being accepted by others is more important than holding to God's word, then it's going to cause us something to happen in us. It's going to, it's going to cause us to, to shy away from saying the, the hard things that God's word says. The hardest thing is that you're a sinner and you can't do anything about it. You're dead in your sin and you're going to face hell. Yet, no matter what good you do, all of it is nothing before God. All of our, you're righteous, we're we're sinners before him, and you're going to go to hell before a holy God. That's hard to say to someone. But then you tell them, but you know what? God loves the world that he gave his son to die in place of us. So that you who repent and believe in him would have eternal life and have forgiveness. And they might say, well, that's, that's, that's hard to believe. Why would he do that? But that's the word of God. That's, that's the hard thing that we need to say out there. And we need to be willing to sacrifice our acceptance by others for the sake of God's word. As a means of comfort, God promises that those who basically persecute uh, believing, believing people of God with the destiny of those who taunt, that is, that they will face shame. They will face shame. At the end of verse 5, that they will face, they will be put to shame. What is that shame? Verse 6 uh, clarifies it. Verse 6, it says, it is the shame of judgment. A voice of uproar from the city, a voice from the temple, the voice of the Lord who is rendering recompense to his enemies. That is, the word of God, that is the Jesus Christ who came first to save the world, will come again to judge the world. And he will come to render recompense to his enemies, to those who oppose him. It will cause uproar in the city. It will cause uproar. and He will will reign from the temple. But his word will go forth. And he will bring about judgment upon this world like none other we've ever seen. He'll bring judgment upon all those who oppose him or his enemies. And at the same time, he will deliver those who tremble before him. So true worship takes place when we value God's word above all other words. When we speak God's words, we can have the confidence that his word is true and it will come to pass. All of the words that man speaks will be found to be false and insignificant. Well, we conclude then. These are what God looks for. This is what God, God is looking for worshipers who prioritize the heart over a house, a temple. God is looking for people who prioritize obedience to the Lord before the sacrifices, the things that we do for the Lord. God is looking for people who prioritize the word of God more than the acceptance of men. It's not that the the outward things, the temple, the house of God, the the sacrifices, the things that we may make, or even the the opinions of men are not necessarily unimportant. They have a particular place. We ought to have a good reputation with those in the world, for instance. Uh, We ought to be people who are willing to sacrifice of ourselves for Christ. We ought to be people who are concerned about the things of God, like the the church building or uh, maybe how we go about worship, the outward things about worship as well. But what is more important is the heart, is our obedience, and the word of God. Let us not be like the Israelites whom Stephen spoke to and called out as being stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart and ears. 
People who are stuck, we're gonna, this is how I worship. I'm always going to worship. This is how we always do it. The pastor's always wearing a suit and tie. There's always going to be 45-minute sermons. We're always going to sing four or five songs from the, uh, from, you know, from the hymnal or from that, that set of songs. It's always got to be that way. None other. We're con- we concerned more about the temple than the heart of worship. Don't let us not be people who are concerned about outward things, but it can, could be concerned about what God's concerned about, our heart and our relationship with him, our obedience to him, our reverence before him, because he is our God. Let us have a humble, contrite spirit that trembles before his word. And again, on our own, we can't do anything. We can't reproduce this. You and I, on our own, cannot produce humility, contrition, or trembling before God. None of it. That's not in our nature. That's why God sent us his son. God sent us his son so that he might redeem us, so that he could give us a new nature, transformation, so that we can then be humble, contrite in spirit, broken, trembling before God as we come to worship him. That's how we should be when we come to worship him this week, every week, week in, week out. Let's make sure that's part of our worship so that we would be counted as true worshipers and not false. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for these truths. Lord, maybe we're sitting here and we say, whoa, boy, glad Pastor Henry's preached that message because so-and-so over there really needs to hear that. Lord, may you cause each of us to examine our own hearts. Lord, show us areas in our life where we may be caught up with a false worship, where we have neglected our hearts, where we have lived in disobedience, where we have not trembled before your word, We've chosen our own ways and not your ways. Well, Lord, guard us from false worship. Guard us from the worship that you find despicable, that is an abomination before you. Help us to learn to examine our hearts for the idols of our hearts, idols of our lives. Let us not leave here having delighted in you and finding greater delight in something else. Let us learn to long to come and to delight, constantly delight in you, in your presence. Help us to realize that when you come back, that that will be the greatest of delights for all of us. When all that is wrong with this world will be made right. And we will be in your presence. We will see you face to face. And we will worship you. We will love you. And we will know you as we've never known before. Father, we pray that our worship would be such that you would receive all the glory. Because, Lord, it is you who produces this worship in us, in Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate temple, the Lamb of God. We thank you again for this time. Thank you, Lord, for this, those who have heard your word. Pray that you would cause your word to grow deep in our hearts and bring about a, a, a fruit in our lives for your glory and the furtherance of your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.